0: Hello and welcome back to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter, the producer and host of New York City's longest-running comedy variety show, No Name and a Bag of Chips. Uh, Thanks for stopping by and choosing to spend some time with us today. Uh, Our guest today is keyboardist, vocalist, actor Richard Binder. Richard Binder is a part of the Summer Replacements No Name's House Band uh, if this is released when we intend it to be released, this will make it kind of a theme month as our other scheduled release for September 1st is, is Carl Fortunato. So it's like all the white guys who have played keyboards for the summer replacements. At any rate, he's a very funny, very thoughtful guy, very engaging. And I just I enjoyed talking with him. Sit back, relax. We're going to kick it back and forth a bit. Before we get to anything else, a word from our sponsor. Get away to Green Bay! That's right, the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast, located in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, I don't know if you've ever been at a Bed and Breakfast before, but if you have, you know, a lot of times the so-called breakfast is like, I don't know, an overripe orange, or, you know, a couple of pieces of toast, maybe a strip of bacon if you get down there early enough breakfast is not usually a selling point for a lot of bed and breakfast but that is not the case at the historic Astor house bed and breakfast every morning you will be greeted with a truly yummy homemade breakfast prepared by your innkeepers tom and linda steber tom and linda will welcome you to any of their five luxury accommodations all of which have a private bath and some of which have their own jacuzzi If you want to know what to do later on after you've had breakfast, well, ask Tom and Linda. They can steer you to anything cool that's happening in Green Bay. They can also make recommendations to you for any restaurants in town or anything that's going on that's worth checking out. So by all means, make your reservations today. For more information and reservations, go to www.asterhouse.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E dot com. Escape to Green Bay today. We're sitting here in Central Park, undetected by the authorities, speaking with with our, our friend Richard Binder. Richard, how you doing, man?
1: All right. All right. It's a beautiful day. And it's nice to be sitting here on a bench talking to Eric Vetter.
0: Oh, wow. uh, Thank you. We've identified everyone, you know what, except for... uh, And our producer, Gary Hardcastle, is here. So there we go. Uh, We've accounted for everybody except for the groupies. And, uh, you know, they're used Mm. to not being identified. So that's that's a good thing. Uh, By the way, it it occurs to me, this this is uh, slated to be released on September 1st. Uh, we're, We're releasing two episodes on the first of each month uh, and this month the other person uh, is Carl Fortunato so apparently this month there is a theme it's all the white guys who play keyboards for the summer replacement so so glad you could be a part of that
1: thank you thank you
0: and ironically this w- this is going to be exactly the same conversation I had with Carl uh, because you two are, are, are truly separated at birth
1: I don't know who that would scare more
0: <laughs> humanity
1: I think humanity I know <laughs> well, everybody uh, suffers
0: all right so we, so we, we, we be, before we got here we, we were talking a bit about uh your native new Yorkers. how long have you been in new york
1: oh geez i was just thinking about this the other day so i guess really officially i moved here when i was 25 there was a little bit of like, like stop leave four years st- ago right yeah yeah thank you thank you yeah, thank you very much yeah i'm just still wait getting the dew from behind my ears and <laughs> trying not to hit you in the eye with it no yeah when i was when i was 25 there was a little bit of like indecision you know for a while i lived with my cousin in nyack which was nice but really ridiculously expensive i lived in jersey city for a while somewhere around like by the time i was either 24 or 25 i was officially like living in the city my first apartment was on West 71st between West End and the river at the time. I think now they've actually put some kind of roadway through there. But at the time, it was just a dead end. I haven't been back in like a while, so I don't know if it's it's the same. But
0: Where do you originally hail from?
1: I was born in New York. My father... Who was a urologist? No, urologist. He was establishing a practice. So, you know, we lived for a while in New York and then we moved to Massachusetts. Uh we lived in Topsfield for a while. But yeah. somewhere around that time we also we moved to Toms River, New Jersey, which is where we settled. And uh, my oh, dad okay. had a very thriving practice there until he retired. So yeah, I lived most of my formative years on the Jersey Shore.
0: So uh growing up, how was that?
1: Tom's River was a really nice place to grow up. My dad was a doctor. You know, the 70s and at least, you know, certainly a good portion of the 80s were a good time to be a doctor. So we were, you know, no getting around it. We did live really comfortably.
0: Was there an expectation that you would follow in the footsteps in in some way, shape or form?
1: I don't know that there was an expectation I would follow in the footsteps, but I think there was an expectation that I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now, that I wouldn't go into the performing arts. This is an interesting part of the story. At least it's interesting to me simply mm. because it's fairly recent knowledge. I'm an adopted child. Mm. and this is not news that was you know this is not news to me my parents were very forthcoming about it from the very very beginning you know we had all the books you know what adoption means and you know it doesn't mean that you weren't loved it means in fact that you were if you think about it this way you were loved even more you know um how do you feel about that you know, I don't know that I really thought one way or the other about it. It was kind of part of like the wallpaper.
0: Uh, your parents would only parent you knew.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, while they made it clear that if I wanted to go searching for my birth parents, they there wouldn't be an issue with it. I always felt kind of awkward about it because I felt like. They probably, you know, people say stuff, but there's a bunch of stuff that they don't say. And I I don't know how comfortable I was with the idea that I would be making anybody feel uncomfortable about, you know, searching out my quote-unquote real parents. And I don't know that I felt very comfortable about trying to reach out to my birth parents because I I assumed at the time that it wasn't exactly the, the apex of a happy time for either of them, you know, mm-hmm. and like just, just suddenly walk into your life and go, hey, remember me, the thing you probably wanted to forget about? You know, that kind of, I don't know how I really felt about that. It wasn't until fairly recently, at least within the past like decade or so, that I made any kind of moves to to find out stuff. Because I was at a party, I remember, and everybody was talking about their ethnic backgrounds. And I realized I didn't really know mine, mm. that I had accepted what my parents' ethnic background was but mine could have been different so um and also there are a bunch of health stuff i figured i should probably be aware of so my interest was really almost purely academic at that point it wasn't like personal but the funny thing is when i went to talk to the agency about this they basically couldn't tell me anything medical because i guess at the time if you had 10 fingers and 10 toes nobody really delved any deeper than that but They told me a lot of other interesting stuff that really whetted my appetite all of a sudden to kind of go, oh, my God, maybe I should have really found out more about, you know, my birth parents at a time when it's possible they might still be around. And it is possible they might still be Mm -hmm. around because they were very young when they had me. My mother was 23. My father was 18. And uh, I guess there was a relationship and it had ended And it was right as the relationship ended that she found out she was pregnant, and she did not feel that my father was mature enough to really handle any kind of responsibility like this.
0: So, Uh, do you you know anything about uh, what they were like at all? Like, well, basically, like any artistic uh, inclinations?
1: This is the wildest part. My mother, according to the agency, was a musician, she was a singer she played the piano the guitar and the flute i believe she did play three instruments i'm pretty sure you know those were the three mm-hmm. and that she gave up this quote has stayed with me she gave up a scholarship to a prestigious university for music and acting in order to have me wow. which says two things number one i feel like it was probably the right call to not like go prospecting too hard to try and find her because right. If it were me, I would have a lot, of, a lot of mixed feelings about the way, you know, certain roads kind of turned out. You know, I don't know how happy I would be to be reminded of that necessarily. Whatever curiosity might linger about whatever happened to that kind of thing. But the craziest thing of this is, when I was growing up, My parents, you know, they did have a great cultural appreciation for stuff. You know, we went to museums all the time. My mother was an artist. She was a visual artist, you know. So she painted, she drew. We went to the theater a lot. Obviously, her being a visual artist, we went to museums a lot. So we were in and out of New York, you know, pretty much every other weekend, you know, taking part in those kinds of cultural things. But they never had any kind of yen to pursue anything like singing or performing in public or anything like that beyond like the occasional toast. My dad, you know, he could be very funny. He would make up limericks, he would make up poems, you know, that kind of stuff. But it was never like a thing to do in public. It was never like to tra- traverse across a stage, you know, pretending to be somebody else or play an instrument and sing in front of people. It was never like a thing with them. And this was something I always had. And it was very clear that this was kind of a gulf between me and my folks. It was sort of a, a basis for a bit of a difficulty in understanding, like why in the world would you want to do that? And, and how early did you have those inclinations? Really early. I would say by the time I was probably nine or 10, it was kind of obvious that that's where I was headed. I was starting to play piano by the time I was six, I think. I had started plunking out tunes on my grandparents' piano. My grandparents lived in this really large house in Long Branch. My grandfather was also a urologist, so my father was following in his footsteps. They did have a piano, and, you know, I think I was plunking out tunes by ear on that piano, and, you know, somebody said, give the child lessons. So I have been playing piano for a good four or five years before I actually stepped on a stage for the first mm-hmm. time. I'm sure you know this too. You get your first well-earned laugh, and that's the spike of heroin in the veins that, you know, you're, you're chasing that dragon for the rest of your life. When was the first time you performed in, in public? So I guess it was an elementary school production of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and I was the Connecticut Yankee.
0: And how old were you?
1: Ten or eleven. Oh, Roletta. man, that, that's yeah. kind
0: of... Kind of ambitious for kids that age. Yeah. It? So you're acting at an early age. Is anything particularly pulling at you, you know, artistically speaking, or you
1: just you just like performing? Well, I did, you know, once I got into junior high, they had at the time what they called pop concerts, right? Where mm. outside of the usual choral, you know, concerts that you did, you could get up and sing. Like the stuff that you hear on the radio we had a very very cool music teacher, Mary Lutton. Wherever you are, I thank you because oh, it's been uh, it's been quite a journey, and you basically kickstarted it. She let me sing Aerosmith. Um, <laughs> which Aerosmith? A kind of deep album cut, "Last Child," which is on the Rocks album, and it was basically whatever she had like sheet music for, right? And I was such a huge <laughs> Aerosmith fan at the age I'm of like twelve. I like you had
0: a music teacher in junior high who had Aerosmith sheet music. She Isn't had her finger awesome. on the
1: pulse. She did. The great thing about At that time, too, was that the teachers did their own pop concert, too, I remember. And I'll never forget Mary Lutton's amazing version of Long Tall Sally. It was amazing. She was obviously very much a rock and roll, you know, slash folk person at heart. She knew that you could use this music to sort of foster music appreciation and get kids to come out of their shells Mm -hmm. and get them up on stage and maybe, you know, take a couple of risks. So that happened, and then the first school musical I ever did was Oliver. You know, I managed to get cast as the Artful Dodger in that. So I got to sing, you know, Consider Yourself Mm -hmm. and I'd Do Anything and like all of this crazy, crazy stuff in obviously a letter-perfect Cockney accent as we (laughs) all knew how to do in junior high on the Jersey Shore, right? And that was really fun. It was fun to get an audience reaction. It was also just fun to sing and to inhabit a character and work with people who you know them as Steve in eighth grade, but they're playing Fagin. And so they're not who you know them in real life. They're playing this character and they're hitting a ball towards you and you get to hit the ball back. And you're you, but you're not you. And so you're. It's it's fun. This sort of kind of weird comfort slash discomfort of role-playing you know again that's like something you either hook into very early or maybe it just sends you screaming from the stage never to do it again you know (laughs) because it's just too weird I really liked it eventually it was the art of it that really kind of hooked me in because everybody likes applause everybody likes people paying attention to you you know I was never one who wanted to have the spotlight exclusively on me like the entire time. I liked having like five or six minutes here and then, you know, just sort of doing my thing. And I liked being part of an ensemble and I liked watching other people do their thing. And I liked being a part of other people doing their thing too.
0: How old are you about now? Is it still junior high? This is
1: still junior high, yeah. And obviously, you know, I think there's a lot about your... <laughs> your adolescent awkwardness, not yours, mm-hmm. but like the royal, your <laughs> adolescent awkwardness right. that, you know, plays into whether or not you really want attention or you don't. Sometimes that does have an effect on whether or not you're adding to a production or you're actually subtracting to it. And if I were to go right. back and look at some of the videotapes from certainly the earlier high school productions, I'd be like, yeah he's overcompensating a bit, isn't he? You know, because he feels a little a little uncomfortable being himself. I found really that it was more when I was like in a scene with people, that that's really what I liked the most. I like singing, right? And I liked being able to like have a number that makes people go, wow, right? But I mean, it was scene work and it was working with other actors that really got me going more than anything. Once I established that part, it was clear that that's really the dragon that you chase the ability to create stuff with other people Mm -hmm. and the part about having the spotlight on you kind of gets de-emphasized in favor of that
0: when it comes time for college which is a factor in where you chose to go where in fact did you go to college
1: i ended up going to syracuse university at the time they had a very well-established musical theater department and that was attractive to me that it already had a reputation and, you know, that there was a way of training that you could, you know, hook into.
0: You're, you're kind of uh, aiming towards the theater, a musical theater?
1: Yeah, you know, the, the funny thing is there was always this tension between wanting to be like a singer and wanting to do my own thing at the piano. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to do it for me. And the thing about doing that in a musical theater department is that there's always this pull for, you know, you to kind of like be the guy who accompanies musicals and other people doing their thing, right? Mm-hmm. Playing in a pit orchestra here, playing in a cabaret there, being a musical director and that kind of thing. And I don't know that I ever really developed, I guess, the academic skills to, to be an effective musical director. I think I have pretty good instincts because I you know, I grew up listening to a ton of different musical styles and, you know, wanting very badly to have like a broad palette as far as that was concerned.
0: And let the record state, you have kind of an encyclopedic knowledge of pop music. <laughs> <laughs> you went beyond Aerosmith. Yeah, um, it's true, yeah. Were you just doing theater department stuff or were you seeking out uh, stuff on your own as well?
1: You know, the thing is I enjoyed a lot of the different work. I did enjoy being a music director in certain contexts. There was a show that we did my senior year of college. It was basically a this crazy quilt cabaret of songs that very loosely had to do with graduating college and going out into the big bad world and trying to forge your own way. It ran the gamut from like music from How to Succeed in Business to, like, the old John Dankworth stuff.
0: Did you get uh, Tom Lear's Old College Days?
1: You know, Tom Lear we did cover him, too, uh, The Christmas Carol. We oh, did okay. him in, like, The Christmas Cabarets. So um, that was one of my first... But no, do you remember Bright College Days? I do remember Bright College Days. Yeah. I had that songbook, you know. We uh, all right, had, right. Yeah, we all had that songbook. You know that what, songbook.
0: that's another through line. Carl also has, is like, the, the collected works of, of Tom Lehrer. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's funny. Like, you know, obviously, many of us discovered him through the electric company because of the songs he did for that. <laughs> right. And then somebody manages to drop the songbook off on your doorstep, and you're like, oh my God, look at this. Right. You know, so I should point out that Tom Lair was also a major bonding point for me and my wife hey. because Stacy did Tom Foolery, you know, the review ah. when she was in college. So we had a lot of similar reference points as far as that was concerned too she has funny stories about that production like <laughs> i can assure you
0: you're working your way through college you're taking on a wide variety of types of assignments oh yeah right? yeah yeah so when, when when you you get the de- did you get the degree i got the degree not not, de- not presume you know no really? no no there it's, was a question yeah you so know, it's, it's i yeah, I, it's, I you know i was a theater arts major for seven years and one day i'm going to go back and get my degree. So, so when you head out, what, what, what are you thinking?
1: You know, it really was very hard because I felt kind of in the middle. I felt like I wasn't musical theater enough for musical theater, but I wasn't necessarily rock or pop enough for rock and pop. So did you it,
0: like one more than, than the other, or was it just all of, all of a piece to you?
1: Well, it was all of a piece, really. I did have, and they were probably right, I did have voice teachers and um, other teachers who were like, you know, oh my God, just make a decision, you know, <laughs> and like do the one thing, and like get really good at the one thing, and then you well, can no, diversify later, you know? Well, no, and,
0: were, were, were they asking that uh, of you? For, for your benefit or for for to make it easier for them to to focus on, on what you're working on?
1: Well, maybe a little bit of both. But I do believe that it was mostly to my benefit because okay. it kind of made sense. I was just being very rebellious because I didn't like the idea of having to give up one thing for the other. I felt like, why couldn't I do both? Why couldn't I do, like, even if I'm not, like, rock enough for this, there's, like, a version of that that I can do that's me that might be useful right Mm -hmm. and vice versa you know for musical theater so it took a while you know for me to to find a place where all of that kind of came together and I can't even say that like it's come together consistently um over the years there are certainly projects that I managed to become a part of very very gratefully so where I'm like ah this is it This is exactly what what it should be there was a show i did in 2007 called the people versus mona which is by jim wan and his wife patricia and jim wan was one of the guys who wrote pump boys and dinettes so the people versus mona was more of a book show pump boys and dinettes was a bit of a review but it had the same kind of like country slash blues kind of aesthetic to the music the People vs. Mono was kind of like a goofy courtroom drama, but there was a lot in it that was kind of revolutionary. It did have a very diverse cast when we did it. It celebrated more of the diversity of the South than perhaps you got to see mm-hmm. in a lot of mainstream shows, mm-hmm. um, at least at the time. The score was a lot of fun. It was really catchy. We had a great cast. and It was very much an ensemble show, but... I was kind of like the narrator of the piece. I got to talk to the audience. I got to crack jokes with the audience. But there was also a through line in which I had relationships with, like, everybody on on the stage. The music was very much country and blues and gospel, but it also had a very sort of, like, musical theater sensibility behind it because, obviously, this music is, you know, the songs are there to tell a story and to further establish characters and things like that and to further the plot along. I had this really fun kind of like Ursat's Roy Orbison number <laughs> towards the end of the show that was so, so much fun to sing. And I felt like this is really kind of like the sweet spot because this like rings all of the the bells that really get me going. You know, I kind of like, this is the music I feel very comfortable singing.
0: When was this? With this like first thing you did out of college?
1: No, 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 no. My gosh. I did kind of flounder around for a good decade or so. Were, for, were you
0: working your way towards New York ultimately, do you think?
1: Yeah, and, you know, it's funny that I did do a lot of musical director gigs just because I wanted to keep my hand in.
0: Did you do, uh, like, the piano bar, piano man kind of thing?
1: Well, yeah, here's the thing. I had this really gift of a gig. At the time, it was called KCOU Radio, and it was on Amsterdam in the 80s. Uh, It was named so because there was a neon clock that hung on the wall that said KCOU Radio. It's now a sports bar called Jake's Dilemma, and you know where that is, right? And at the time, they had a a rotating roster, well, when I say rotating roster, two uh, (laughs) piano players, uh, one of whom is Tim Pasqua. I hope I'm getting that name right. But he's kind of a mainstay now on the cabaret circuit. He's at least a well-known singer-songwriter here in New York City. Really, really nice fellow. Uh, He played two nights out of the week, and I played two nights out of the week. And then eventually he moved on to, I'm going to assume, much greener pastures. And I took over his slot, and I was playing there four nights a week. And it was great because the bartender was this awesome person, Sue Ann Morrow. Sam, we called her. And uh, we had this amazing similar musical sensibility so we knew all of the same songs like right off the bat and so we would sing these sort of like lovelorn ballads across the way to one another as people like hooked up or broke up in the bar as the night went on it was really kind of a fun atmosphere and anything went i mean people could come in and you know i'll (laughs) uh I, i get this is really gonna you really got to date me considerably, but the night Kurt Cobain died. Well, no, actually it wasn't, a, it wasn't the night Kurt Cobain died, but there were several, it was like around the same time Kurt Cobain died. These two girls came into the bar and they were weeping and moaning over the death of Kurt Cobain. They asked if I could play any Nirvana. And I thought, what can I play of Nirvana that isn't going to sound like Peter Allen on the piano, right? Because that's always the danger, Right. You don't want that happening, right? Because everybody's going to think it's lame. So obviously, you know, All Apologies was like the easiest default thing to go to. And they <laughs> wailed it off key and screamed it at the top of their lungs, you know, while crying the entire time. And then they said, that was great. Can you play any Pearl Jam? And obviously, like, we're going like the, around the entire, like, holy triumvirate of, of Seattle at that point. Right, right. So, so I ended up playing Black because I figured that was also like something you could get away with on the piano that wasn't going to sound lame. And the entire time I'm playing Black, I'm thinking, God, please don't request any Soundgarden. Please let it be Allison Chains and not Soundgarden, because I'm not going to make Soundgarden happen. They tipped really, really generously, and I felt very bad about it, because clearly they were drunk and they were very compromised in quite a lot of ways. But I... <laughs> The rent was very easy that month, is all I'm saying. So, yeah. And it was a gift of a gig, too, because we could sing whatever we wanted. And it turned out that she knew the soundtrack of One from the Heart as well as I did. So we were doing, like, you know, all of those Tom Waits and Crystal Gale duets, you know, like Mm -hmm. Picking Up After You and Once Upon a Town. and, And it set a really great tone for the bar. You know, sometimes, like, a bunch of people would come in and they would request... The Elton Joel stuff that, you know, <laughs> right. everybody feels like they got to hear. But then they, of course, they try and stump you and, you know, you'd figure out a way around it and, you know, manage to, you know, make pretty good tips and have a really fun evening. Mm-hmm. And it was a really great gig because I got to play all the music that I loved.
0: All right, let, let let let's talk about the journey. So so uh were you doing anything much before you moved to New York in terms of, you know, professional gig?
1: I did. I did work at the Hampton Playhouse in New Hampshire long may it rain. It's no longer there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um which is a shame because it was a really really great place to work. I worked there as an actor for one season and then I worked as the um and I don't know what possessed them, but they uh they had a theater workshop for mm-hmm kids for like teenagers and they ran it like one week stock where they would do like a different children's theater production every week so that they'd like cast it on Sunday. They'd rehearse it Monday through Thursday. They'd take it on Friday. They'd run it twice on Saturday. They'd collapse Saturday afternoon and then start the whole process over for the entire eight weeks, Mm -hmm. depending on who was directing or, you know, running the place. Uh, they would either adapt material themselves write it like completely out of whole cloth you know out of their own heads or they like take pre-existing material or whatever the guy who ran it the year i was the music director for that he was very much into writing his own productions we only did a couple of pre-existing material um like maybe two or three times that summer Everything else was written by whoever was directing that particular show or adapted by whoever was directing that particular show. I had never done this before in my life, but I had this idea that if I wrote music specifically for these kids to sing in these shows. It would ground them in the process more. Then it's a song written specifically for their strengths. It's written in character. I had this idea that they would respond more to that than if like they were just given like, you know, we're doing Dr. Doolittle and here sing talk to the animals, you know, that kind of thing. And I think for the most part, I was right. I really had no like music notation experience. Mm -hmm. So mostly I wrote lyrics on a piece of paper and then I sang what I, how I thought the song would go. And I sort of like banged it into everybody's heads that way, which is really no way to work. But I think they were excited about the process and about, I don't mean to flatter myself, but I mean about the stuff that they got to sing for the most part. I think, you know, I wrote like 20 songs in eight weeks and I think anywhere between like, Six to ten of them I would probably play for you now without being ashamed. I think they're okay. And so it was fun. And again, like when I said before that like there were contexts in which I enjoyed that kind of work. You know, that was a very specific context. Because a lot of it also had to do with the kids themselves and just how gung-ho they were. How really just willing... They were to go the extra mile to make this stuff work. Mm. We did this really crazy production of Old King Cole. And the director wanted me to write a song for the chorus that uh, was absolutely off the wall silly. And so I wrote them this really stupid 50s number about... The, characters, the main characters in the show were going to partake in an egg spoon race in order to win the hand of the princess, right? Whoever won the egg spoon race was going to win the hand of the princess. And so I wrote them this stupid, stupid 50s number... Where they're like members of the court and they're all supposed to be incredibly dignified, but when nobody's looking, they really lose their shit. So they do this 50s about how much they can't wait for the egg spoon race and it's just full with stupid egg puns and you know. And I was really nervous about giving it to them because I didn't want them to feel like I was deliberately making them look foolish. How old are the kids? You told them? Well, they were like? in their teens, you know, okay. like anywhere between like 14 to 17. You know, I'm like, I'm not doing this, you know, to make you look like assholes. You know, you're the characters you're playing are sort of like, you know, this is who they are. And they really did. They just embraced the entire aesthetic of the song. And they like just went into it. It was amazing to watch. It was really heartwarming to watch. It was fun. I think I ran out of steam after a while. But then the third to last production we did was the Flintstones. And there was this crazy original script that Mike Morarian, I should name check him because he's he's a he's a mad genius, um, but he had this idea that like Fred and Barney discover gasoline completely by accident, which is good because then they don't have to run with their cars anymore, right? right? It's like a major major thing, but these gangsters find out. So the gangsters find out that Fred and Barney have this formula for gasoline, and they're going to steal it, and they're going to like you know throw them in the river, you know, with their concrete shoes. So I wrote. A scheming, you know, they don't wear shoes. I know that's the thing, sorry, right? Go ahead. But I wrote them this scheming song, the gangsters, a scheming song called Flintstone Sleeps with the Ichthyosaurus. It was a tango <laughs> and it was totally shamelessly ripped from like Hook's tango from Peter Pan, right? So there was that, and then there was this like pseudo Fats Waller kind of song I wrote for. Fred and Barney celebrating their incredible discovery called a couple of slick Cro-Magnon renaissance men. This is the level we're talking about here what? for the summer, right? What? Um, no,
0: but so, all right. So, so and but, this, this yeah. is like one of your first gigs, right? Well, I At, mean, out of college.
1: yeah, I mean, cause like, I mean, I graduated from college in 90. So like, this was like 93.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so
1: this was 93. Still early. Still relatively early. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I had a difficult time making my mark on stage versus like being behind the piano. Mm-hmm. Um. And there, like I said, there were certain contexts in which I enjoyed being behind the piano. Because again, sure. I like being part of a group. Right. I like, you know, right. adding like whatever it is I do to whatever, you know. But to so, like,
0: so those are the kind of gigs that were coming more your way earlier on.
1: Yes. It didn't, it took, again, I think probably a number of years, probably not until the 2000s where I really started to work on stage a little more consistently. Mm. And um, by
0: that point you are in New York?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, definitely in New York. I was in New York officially 90, 1992. Oh, so God. yeah, so I had only spent like a couple of years like on the outskirts of New York, and then you know I was subletting here in Washington Heights. Right? We had this conversation the other night. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, we'll let
0: we'll, we'll it edit that part out. Yeah, but no. Um, <laughs> uh, but no. So, so when you when you first hit New York, mm-hmm. how are you paying the bills?
1: So many, um, so many, temp gigs. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> I did work for a time, temporarily speaking, at Hair Club for Men. Huh. Yeah, that was a fun. But, but you
0: were not the president,
1: though. I was not the president. Oh, at okay, all. I did speak with the legendary Cy Sperling once on wow, the phone.
0: Like, can, may I touch your garment?
1: Yeah, you may. You may, but you uh. know, it'll cost you. All right. Yeah. You get
0: that kind of bucks. Yeah. So you spoke with Sid Sperling. What, I spoke with what Side Sperling. Kind of, what
1: kind of guy was he? Oh, man, that was a guy who was clearly loving life. I mean, I didn't like speak to him more than like just to transfer him to some, you know, he was looking for, he was looking for my manager, right? <laughs> so um, I picked up the phone and, you know, and and this really incredibly jocular voice says, you know, hey, hello, who's this? I said, this is Richard. Richard the Lionhearted. Can you transfer me to Mario? You know, and that was my the extent of my dialogue with. Um, <laughs> it sounds like you got out at the right time, though. It's yeah. pleasant
0: and don't linger.
1: Yeah, no, no. Let me tell you, I had the easy gig at Hair Club for Men because I worked in the executive offices. The mm. folks who work the front desk, that's the job you don't want. That sounds like it could be sad. Because, man, those guys, when there's something that goes wrong with with their system, that's mm. what we call it. We call right. it a system, not a piece, but a system. Exactly. Something goes trend awry with their... S- they are ready to kill. They are murderous. And they're ready to kill you because at the time, of course, I <laughs> had hair... So, you know, right? so there's already a lot of resentment coming off the elevator, right? You know, and, and so it, it really was like apocalypse now, you know. Oh, wow. It was really, really hardcore. So anything I could do to escape that particular, you know, that particular job, you know, I'm like, I'm perfectly happy. Put me in the file room, you know, Put let me put the files in alphabetical order, you know, that kind of thing, you know. So, yeah, but no, it was it really was a fun place to work. And I did work there for a while. Um, and I did work a number of places too, because, you know, as a piano player, I could type really fast. Yeah. So, you know, um, I also ended up doing a lot of uh, transcription work, you know, not, oh, okay, like mu- okay. not music transcription, but you know, like you listen to people talk, you type it out, you know, that kind of why, thing. Why? Um, and there was this terrific agency I worked for, for the longest time. Um, they were really great in giving consistent work. And they had, you know, they ran the gamut from like the driest as bone kind of board meetings to the foot fetish orgy for real sex on HBO, you know? Um, so, and at the time we were still, you know, uh, Oh God, he was still, was he still alive? No, but his concerns were still alive, I guess. Al Goldstein, um, you know, screw magazine and, oh, you know, okay, yeah, yeah. uh, all of that stuff. Um, so we did get a lot of porn, you know. We did get a lot of like, you know, Dutch Penthouse stuff and like interviews with porn stars and stuff like that, along with, you know, an interview with Suha Arafat, right? Not for Penthouse magazine, not for Dutch Penthouse, but you know, like for like more legitimate magazine. So it was this tremendous kind of like, you know, swath of of stuff and you never knew what it was until, you know, you got your tapes home at night. Now
0: let me ask you this. Did you did you when you're doing this kind of work mm-hmm. were you uh, dreaming of oh i wish i was getting more uh, i don't know piano bar work or whatever w- would pay the bills or was it like uh, it whatever gives you the means to be able to you know do the 9 to 5 and then you know seek out other you know
1: your passions i was really grateful that you know um and i got to touch wood here because i still have this job i got a job that Again, it was supposed to be a temp job, but I've ended up working there ever since. You know, like for at least like half my life now. Um, mm. At um, at this company that produ- you know, that publishes the New York Law Journal, the American Lawyer. Um, it's uh, a company called ALM. They also uh, publish, you know, all of these real estate publications and employee benefits publications. And um, you know, they've really diversified over the years. I have managed to you know, work for them and and still get to go off and do, you know, theater stuff and and make, you know, and have that work um, over the, you know, over the several years that I've worked there. I've been very, very lucky because I know it's a very privileged position to be in, you know, and it's one that I don't like to abuse. But thanks to them, you know, and, and their, their willingness to sort of, you know, allow me to roll with them, and for them to roll with me. I, um, I got to go to uh, Ukraine for a week in 2002 to participate in this international theater festival. You know, at a time really when I had kind of just started working legitimately full time for them, and they didn't necessarily have to let me go and still allow me to have like a job right, when I get back. Like you
0: had built up equity. At that yeah,
1: time. yeah. So um, they've been really, really generous. Um, and, you know, and this is the thing, obviously, you know, when you're met with that, you obviously want to, um, you know, justify that generosity. Right. So, I mean, I'm at least one of those people who doesn't like to take advantage of that. Um, you know, I like to like put in, you know, the extra hours to make sure, you know, you know, that I'm not messing around, you know, I take my job seriously and all of that, and I'm going to make this work and you don't have to worry about that. So as far as that's concerned over the many, you know, over the many, many years, I've been lucky in that that part has really been taken care of. You've handled the
0: how do the bills get paid thing yeah. along the way. Now, what, as you were solving that, were you finding any more clarity in, in where your heart wanted to go artistically or was it a matter of, uh, you know, taking whatever gigs were coming up or how does that work now? Well,
1: it was very much a gig by gig basis, you mm. know, um, that, that, you know, that show the people versus Mona was so ideal mm. that, you know, it did kind of ruin me a little bit for <laughs> other stuff. Right. Right. Um, right. I mean, in the, you know, in that time period, I also got to do a production of 1776. Um, so that was fun cause that's a dream that's a dream role for any musical theater male. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so that was fun. Um, you know, and I really did like doing new work, you know, I liked doing all of these play readings and all of these, you know, readings of new musicals and stuff. Um, I liked getting in on the ground floor and watching how things develop, you know, that was the thing, you know, that whole process really appealed a great deal to me, but I think it wasn't until very recently, within like the past decade that I managed to get a gig that really satisfies kind of everything at once. My friend, Doug, Doug Shapiro, who is, yes, Doug Shapiro. And if if you know Doug, Doug is like Dolly Levi before him. He has always been a person who arranges things, right? (laughs) Right, right. You know, like Doug is the center of the universe around which so many people revolve, you (laughs) know, he knows. He knows people what knows people what knows people, and he's forever connecting people with stuff. He's amazing that way. Mm -hmm. And one day, out of the blue, he said, You know, he called me up and said, Hey, the And How did you know Doug? I knew Doug from school. We went to Syracuse together. He was uh, two years younger than I was. Um, He was uh, one of the assistant stage managers of Snoopy the Musical when we did it, you know, when I was a junior and he was a freshman, and, you know. and that's a legendary story that we just don't have time for. But you know, I got to come back then. Yeah. So he calls me out of the blue and he says, Hey, the church choir where I'm singing, the tenor spot just opened up. You should audition because don't you want to see me every week? And, you know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, it. Yeah. And I'm like, Well, in spite of that, I think I'll audition for that. Yeah. And so I did. And, um, you know, I did get the the seat. And that was in 2000. I want to say, because. My daughter Jade was four, I guess, because I've because li- I've been there now for like over a decade, for eleven years. So, mm. so 2011, I guess. 2011, 2010.
0: I'm I'm sorry. I'm just laughing because I'm thinking like, okay, so all this other stuff is you know from from an eight-year-old Aerosmith to <laughs> to you know to to uh, you know the college productions and 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 to. Piano bar, Nirvana, and and uh, writing original songs for kids, and and and, and here we go, church choir. That, that hadn't, <laughs> was that ever even remotely in 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 the sights or consideration?
1: The funny thing about that is one of the relatively consistent gigs I had for a while was I would be the July pianist for a church in Bronxville when their musical director went on vacation mm-hmm. and they needed somebody to play piano for their services while he was gone. The way this happened, and I mean, this is, again, like one when, when I when I really think about, and maybe you do this too, when you think about like how you ended up, where you ended up, yeah. you know, it is kind of amazing when, you know, we kind of take it for granted like, oh crap, look where I am. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, Crap! Look where I've been, and look how all of this like has managed to, to to connect like this.
0: Well, if if I may, that's actually why I, I kind of wanted to have you, the guest, on here, because what we're trying to focus on with this podcast is the what we feel is a unique experience of being uh, a performing artist, an artist in New York City, because everybody takes different paths, right. you know, to yeah. get here, and like you say, it's it's, it's not. Was something that is not not part of our mission statement, but something that personally fascinates me is mm-hmm. that the disparity between the game plan you draw up when you're younger and, and how shit
1: actually plays out. Right. You know? right. Yeah. So, so for you, it's church choir. Yeah, and this is, I think, what happens when. I mean, really, I didn't have any like set plan mm. because I was so unsure of what it was I wanted to do. I wanted to do so many things. I didn't want to like leave one for the other. I had a hard time focusing, you know? And and I I didn't wanna, you know, because I felt like I could gain ground in any which way. So why don't I just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks? So it is interesting how this all happened. I managed to get my equity card playing a dog in a children's theater production <laughs> of The Wizard of Oz. Uh, with the Were late- you Toto? I was Toto. I was the late lamented, uh, part of the late lamented Gingerbread Players and Jack. They were a great, great company to work for. And I did do a couple of shows with them. Again, as a musical director, too, I went on tour with them for a little bit, um, playing and piano And you musical for them. director, too. Yeah. yeah. I had to. Yeah. <laughs> Uh so yeah, I played like, you know, you know, Toto in the movie is like this little like Karen Terrio, but here's like he's this Saint Bernard, right? <laughs> you know, accompanying Dorothy to Oz. But I did manage to get my equity card playing this dog I put in my hours and I did my weeks and I got my equity card officially on the stage of paper mill playhouse at one of the stops of us doing like the wizard of Oz and
0: that, that, that is absolutely one of the most awesome stories of, of, of getting your <laughs> equity
1: card I've heard.
2: Yeah, it was
1: fun. And then one of the guys that I worked with in that production was a guy, may he rest in peace named Dennis Hearn, Dennis Hearn, as it turned out, was part of the group of actors and performers who had fallen in with al carmines in the late 60s early 70s and i don't know if you know who al carmines is but al carmines was kind of a an institution in the off off broadway scene at the time um you know he uh he graduated from union theological seminary so he was you know a church musician but he also wrote a bunch of off off broadway musicals, um, including, you know, uh, one about uh, Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein about their love affair. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Um, and he wrote um, this Christmas oratorio of sorts called Christmas Wrappings, R-A-P-P-I-N-G-S. R-A-P-P-I-N-G-S. Right. And um, I guess that would probably be his, his, well, you know, his best known, known work if you if you know him at all Mm -hmm. um dennis always had these great stories about um you know about al carmines and what a tremendous uh what a tremendous musician he was and what a tremendous personality he was well al carmines did pass away during the time that you know i was working with dennis in the show and there was this huge memorial service that they had at union theological seminary dennis wanted to put together a medley of music from christmas wrappings as part of this memorial service. And he got, you know, our mutual friend, Chad, involved. And Chad was on this tour as well uh, with the Wizard of Oz. Um, And he got Stacy, my wife, involved too. The two of us got to do this really terrific duet uh, based on the verse. Uh, She wrapped him in swaddling clothes, which was reimagined as a tango. What is it with me and tangos, man? I don't know. I just like figured out that through line too. And as a consequence of doing that, memorial service. One of the guys who was at the memorial service, uh, was then, uh, the pastor of this church in Bronxville and his name, uh, was John Barrett. And John Barrett had us perform up there, you know, doing these sort of liturgical works by Al Carmine's. He was a huge, huge fan of his obviously. Mm -hmm. And somehow or other, those little gigs morphed into, Kind of like a standing set of being the the, the July music director um, for the church um, whenever their you know their usual musical director went away. So it's not like I haven't been doing church stuff kind of sorta. Mm. So it was there. This was a very uh, I mean this was a really unique kind of it still is i mean a very unique i mean i know you shouldn't say very unique aaron sorkin would kill me for saying very unique so maybe you can edit that out too this particular situation at madison avenue baptist church it really is just a, a gift of a gig it's a six-person professional choir everybody comes from a very different kind of discipline um you know we have two operatically trained singers you know we have uh Two uh, very sort of musical theater inclined singers. Then you got me and Alex, who kind of, you know, can straddle both to some degree, right? Right. right. And
0: uh, he refers to Alex D'Souz, who's been a past guest on this podcast and who is the drummer for our House, No Names House Band, and Summer Replacement. <laughs> Actually, was uh, <laughs> responsible for. For introducing us to you, and that that's a different story. That but is, right, yeah. But yeah. Uh, but you know what? While we stopped for while we took a sidebar for a moment, it's probably worth uh, giving a quick plug. This will be out in time for you to see Alex De cabaret show, which Richard Binder will also be uh, doing a a guest spot in. Uh, at don't tell mama in september and october i know september 28th do you by any chance recall the other date
1: i do it's uh the middle of october hang on a second um i think it's like i know one of the dates is the 15th and the other date is the 11th um and no yeah the 11th and the 15th both at uh, 7 p.m at uh, don't tell mama so yeah all right, so we're
0: done with the play. Right. All right, so we're done with we're, the blogs. We, we, we were we were both kind of kind of uh, I think we were both kind of waiting for a musical jingle to finish off the the blog, <laughs> but um, go see Alex, go see Alex. <laughs> do, do, do. No um. <laughs> definitely edit that out right. uh, but, <laughs> but anyway so so yeah so you and alex uh are, are able to bridge the gap between genres well yeah, for the to, choir. Some, yeah
1: to, to some degree i mean i think alex probably does it better i mean from the from the more legit standpoint than, well, she, than i do at this probably,
0: point she'd probably got a bit more uh ca- cabaret chops and you probably got more rock and pop rock right. and
1: pop chops right rock and pop i will accept too yes um <laughs> But yeah, and you know, um, everybody's got very distinctive singing voices, Mm -hmm. but when everybody sings together, it really is this amazing sound, you know, Um, and I think we all really treasure that, Mm -hmm. and you know, we certainly don't take it for granted, and we really get a big kick out of each other as people, and as performers, you know, so there's there's a great rapport amongst the singers, and... You know, there's a great appreciation for what everybody does. There is also kind of like, you know, oh my gosh, that was really awesome. I better like kick it up a couple of notches the next <laughs> time I actually get up in front of people, right? Right. Um, and so there's a lot of healthy, you know, I don't want to say competition because it's not like that, but like certainly, you know, nobody each other. Yeah, nobody wants to. Nobody wants to be accused of slacking, right? Yeah, so yeah. you don't um, want to be the one that drops the ball, right? And it is also just an amazing place to work because musically they do accept a very, very broad palette of stuff. You know, I've brought in Leonard Cohen, I've brought in Paul Simon, I've brought in Joni Mitchell, I've brought in, um, you know, all of these sort of, what would be, I guess, semi-obscure singer-songwriter types, simply because they're writing about spiritual matters, you know, in such a way that it would fit perfectly in that space and what you know that space is particularly about mm-hmm. in terms of like the kind of messages that they put across to their congregation, and, and
0: a- Alex has even mentioned to me uh, about you, you guys doing like a country and western Good Friday service.
1: Yes, yeah, that was really kind of a masterstroke on on Paul's part because he had this great Paul, a- the director? music director, yeah, yeah. Paul Stefan, um, who is sadly leaving us in a couple of weeks. Um, he's done a, a tremendous amount of work there and you know been a great captain of that particular ship and one of his many legacies um, that he's left and I hope will continue as the country Western uh, Good Friday service, because um, I don't know whose idea it was, but the idea is that, you know, Good Friday is a pretty heavy day, you know, country music, about some pretty heavy subjects, right? You know, mm-hmm. people who lose everything, people who lose their parents, you know, you um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of pain and suffering, and obviously there's a big religious component to a lot of country music as well. So are, are
0: you are you a religious person by by nature?
1: You know, I know it's kind of a cop out, but um, you know, you know the, the what's the Mel Brooks routine? The two thousand year old man, right? The two thousand year old man, mm-hmm. and is it is it Phil, the guy? The biggest guy in the cave. The biggest guy in the cave. We didn't have yeah. God, right? He yeah, said oh, we right, didn't have yeah, God. Yeah. We had Phil, yeah. right? I think it's yeah. Phil. And we prayed to him. Yes, yeah, so we prayed.
0: Hey, 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 hey. Do you remember your prayers? Oh, Philip, <laughs> please, please don't hit us and hurt us and take our eyes out. Yeah,
1: yeah. And right. then one day, some you know, a big lightning strikes and and like <laughs> and takes so out so Phil, and then we're like, there's, there's something, something bigger, bigger than, than Phil. Phil. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's kind of my take on this. That I I, I believe that there is something more to what it is that we see, what our senses actually, you know, have. I don't know that the answers that we have come up with are those answers. Mm. Um, I feel like you scratch enough divine inspiration, quote unquote, enough, and you're going to find a lot of human frailty, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Why? But why, why. it is something I think to take into consideration in terms of what you're going to accept full on, you know? Um, and so I was raised Lutheran, mm. you know, um, and my mother always said that she liked Lutheranism. And I don't want to like besmirch my mother by saying this, but you know, she said she was like Lutheranism because she felt it was a very calm, laid back, religion which i you know and when i found out you know when i started doing like research on martin luther i'm like i don't think martin would appreciate that (laughs) characterization of this right Right, but it did make it seem like catholicism on really good weed right you know like so you commit a mortal sin are you sorry okay here right and um even that i kind of bristled at because i thought you know i don't know that religion should be that laid back Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. Um, like, obviously it's there to like, keep certain things in check, uh, you know, and maybe those certain things don't need to be kept in check all the time, but it's probably good that there's something keeping at least a lot of it in check.
0: Well, well people, people feel uh, most people, whether they admit it or not, would, uh, kind of like to feel that there's some sort of order, some sort of structure some sort of explanation almost even whether or not they buy it. Yes. But it's just kind of like, okay, this, well, let me, if, if I may, like, kind of, uh, um, so you've had this
1: gig for a number of years now, right, for over a decade? I have, and a lot of it is because I've been able to, you know, the thing, I like the ministerial aspect of it, as it mm. turns out. I like having a context for a performance that actually does measurable good for somebody. You know, people come to this space because they want to be uplifted, right? Right. They want some kind of comfort, you know? And part. a lot of that comfort comes from the music, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So to be able to kind of like... And especially
0: from the approach that you're talking about, it seems like the... the, uh kinds of music that you're incorporating uh is more about music and and a unifying spirituality rather than denominational particulars
1: yes yes that is true that's a good way to put it yeah um and the idea that there is music out there that's being done now by you know people who are alive right Mm -hmm. um and and so like they address a lot of these same concerns that are addressed by the old school kind of repertoire the old school kind of church repertoire just in a more modern kind of um modern kind of aspect well, and a lot of that you know and it does run the gamut like you know obviously bob dylan had a very big like you know hardcore very old testament fire and brimstone christian uh segment of himself yes precisely yes. yeah um
0: (laughs) there's another cartoon impression in a way
1: uh yeah it's hard with that guy i know (laughs) um so i've done you know some stuff of of his there and you know with him you got to be a little you got to be a little choosy because he does get you know he does get very kind of like you know very fundamentalist about the whole thing at the time you know certainly at the time but um you know but the idea that, like you know, again, like Paul Simon's "Questions for the Angels," right? There's another one that I that I managed to do, um, and you know, that's another one that, of course, you know, packages a lot of these sort of existential questions that people do have as they're walking the streets of New York, mm-hmm. right? So it kind of relates in a in a very kind of, you know, unexpected way to I think I would like to believe a lot of people's experiences, and mm-hmm. there was a piece that I found by a great. Um, uh, I guess you would call him a folk singer songwriter named Ellis Paul called oh, man yeah, called, yeah, yeah. No, uh, Angel right. in Manhattan um, yeah. you know, which is really you know it turns out it turned out to be a really, really deep song for that space, you know um, And uh, it, it I've been very lucky in that my kind of again crazy cult approach to trying to find you know, appropriate solo music for a service has been embraced by Reverend Susan Sparks and by the congregation and by Paul, the musical director for, for so many years. And also, you know, by the people that I work with, I feel very, very lucky mm-hmm. because again, you know, having such a broad musical palette that I've cultivated because I, again, I don't want to miss anything. Right. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm like Peter Falk in murder by death. You know,
2: <laughs> I got to write a can again.
1: Um, you know, I don't want to miss any interesting stuff that's out there because there is so much interesting stuff being done. And, you know, you just have to look. And it's easier to look now in a lot of ways than it was in the past because streaming makes it easy to just sort of, like, cast your nets really, really far and wide. And, you know, and then, like, pull in some, you know, the internet just in general is, is, is wonderful for that too.
0: And, so- and you, you, it's, it seems like, uh, as you're talking about it, it seems to me like uh, the, the church gig is actually giving you... Uh, a- an excuse to, to scour and, and, and consider other music and yes. And, and I guess in a way repurpose it. Um, but it, it, let me ask you this. It has this gig. Uh, you've talked about how it's impacted you, you know, in, in terms of eh. edit this question out. This is awkward. Uh, <laughs> No, I'm going to back up. I'm going to plow through. I know what I want to say, I just haven't found a word yet. Two things I'm kind of curious about with the the gig. Do you find that it has impacted your approach to spirituality or or your own personal journey on that, not to sound too new-agey? And also, I'm wondering, has this impacted your musical work uh, and performing work outside of the the church uh, context, choir context?
1: Man, those are good questions. You know, I do think there's a constant kind of interrogation of spiritual matters that I've been doing since I was a kid. And I think part of that comes from I had a very, even though I was raised Lutheran, you know, my father came from a Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. He converted to Lutheranism officially, you know, when he married my mom, but, you know, do you really leave it behind? Probably not, right? And so there's, there's been, and you know, I do credit, you know, both my parents for this. Um, there has been a very argumentative aspect to the way that I approach, um, you know, religion, just in, in, you know, in general, with the i with the understanding that a lot of the questions I wish I had answered are probably never going to get answered to my, um, to my satisfaction, but. I do kind of like the Old Testament simply because, you know, they all talk back to God, right? I mean, they all got in arguments with the guy, right? They bargained with him, right? They said, you know, like, okay, what if I find 10 righteous people? What if I find five righteous people? You know, like the idea of like arguing with a deity, right? Like he was a very personal Deity that was in your face all the time, right? And right, right. you know, even Job like was totally pissed off at. I'm like, why the hell did you do this? And of course, you know, God goes on for pages, like, how dare you question the maker of heaven and earth? And blah 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 blah. You know, and it's all this great poetry and stuff like that. But You'd somewhere,
0: script writers now. Yeah, I know, uh, but th- yeah. that's the thing.
1: Somewhere like, along the line, God disappears from the narrative to a great degree, at least as an active participant, uh, uh, right? So. Um, and that I find rather interesting um, that instead we have all these human intermediaries, but you know, that we're supposed to sort of take on faith, I guess. But, um, I, so I feel like this is something I really want to continue with the music that I choose for the, my church gig. It's mm-hmm. not easy because obviously you don't really want to send people away feeling worse than when they walked in the door, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a couple of pieces I still have in my back pocket that I'm trying to find a context for. <laughs> you know, there's this wonderful, wonderful piece by uh, Greg Brown that was made relatively famous uh, by uh, Cry, Cry, Cry. I don't know if you remember Cry, 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 but Cry, Cry, Cry was at least uh, an, an album one off of Dar Williams and Lucy Kaplansky and Richard Schindel. And they did a bunch of, you know, a a bunch of each other's songs, a bunch of like other, you know, other people's, you know, other people's pieces. And one of them is this Greg Brown song called, Lord, I've made you a place in my heart. And it's about just how shitty this place is Mm -hmm. that he's made in his heart. And he hopes that God never shows up because it's just humiliating that this is what you're going to have to see. Mm -hmm. And it is despairing in a lot of ways. But there's something about it that rings a lot of bells in that it's very human, you know. And I keep figuring that there has to be a context for this song to be used in a church service where regardless of your station, right, it's not supposed to matter. So even though you're caught up in the way, you know, you're, you are know, you haven't cleaned in forever and, you know, you're you've got piles of pornography like, you know, line, you know, up in the corner and stuff that you really are ashamed of that you don't want anybody to see, let alone, you know, an all powerful deity. The whole point of this is that you are accepted regardless of that. Right? Right, right. And I keep hoping, right. To try and find like some kind of context for that. Um, and, uh, you know, not yet, not yet, but you know, I still hold out hope, you know, it is part of like, I guess, again, and this is a weird place to find myself in, you know, this sort of ministerial aspect of being, um, you know, a, a member of the of this particular church choir, you know, and taking that seriously enough that I want to be able to deliver, you know, some pretty heavy duty stuff, mm. um, you know, whenever I, you know, whenever the opportunity arises. This is why the, um, the Country Western Good Friday has been you know I, you know I, a bit of a godsend not to make <laughs> a terrible pun but um i managed to convince paul i don't think he needed really that much convincing simply because uh, it's a great great song um but I, but I managed to get to do uh elephant by jason isbell mm-hmm. and elephant is this extraordinary extraordinary song um about uh, this this guy singing about this woman that he loves who's dying of cancer as you know Jason is such a great I talk about him like you know by uh, by his first name like I know him but you know Jason Isbell is such an amazing writer that of course the way the story unfolds is you know part of what really hits you between the eyes and hits you in the gut Um, and the elephant of the title is the thing you're not talking about. The cancer is what you're not talking about you know try you're doing everything to ignore the elephant somehow Mm -hmm. is like the part of the chorus and paul managed to find a theological context in the good friday service for that song to have a place oh nice and it really just like you know I, i think i may have cried for like a couple of seconds because i was so i was so thrilled um because it's such a great song and, you know, to be able to do it and to be able to do it in this particular context was, was a tremendous, tremendous gift. Um, so yeah. Interesting that you bring up, you know, outside the church, right? Yeah.
0: Could I, could I, as as you speak about this, it's very clear what, how this church choir gig has impacted you, you know, both with your connection with music and, and, you know, and it's also a steady professional gig that you've had for over a decade, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, and uh, but I'm curious about impact on the outside, and what are you doing on the outside of, of the church gig these days?
1: You know, this is where things get a little dicey because obviously we're still coming out of the pandemic, mm-hmm. and you know the well, land- let
0: let's say let's say over the course of the last decade, over the course concurrent of of, of uh, you being a, a part of this gig.
1: You know, I've done, uh, you know, I, I've, I've still continued to do like developmental readings of stuff, you know, that's, you know. For theater. For theater, yeah. 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 Um, um, Stacy, my wife, managed to produce uh, for two nights only because that's all that we could afford. <laughs> uh, we managed to do um, Next to Normal twice. Uh, about like, you know, I guess now, about, you know, four or five years ago. Gosh, time flies. Um, so you know, so the two of us got to play those roles at least. You know, um, which and, was... and
0: your your wife, for those listening, is is, is quite an accomplished, uh, an accomplished yes, <laughs> singer and 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 actress and cabaret performer as well. Correct. Yes. Yes. And and, Stacy Lee. Stacy Lee Tilton. Tilton. I yeah. I, I hesitated for a moment because my, you know, I'm, I, my brain is rambling on twelve things. I like I was about to say that, like, oh God, I can't get his wife's name wrong. <laughs> uh, I've worked with her; she's a wonderful person. I just, I, <laughs> and, I like, and I want to make sure that our audience knows her name is Daisy Lee.
2: Tilton, <laughs> so it
0: so, is Stacey <laughs> Lee Tilton. Oh man, yeah, we're yeah. gonna we're, we're gonna have Gary Hardcastle, our producer, working overtime on this one. <laughs> so yes, but uh, no, no, that that's uh, that's kind of wonderful. that you know two two such wonderful performers. Uh, you know, winding up together, yeah, on the on the path, whatever. I'm sorry, but you were saying you you, you managed uh, produce a
1: yeah. Stacy managed to produce next to normal but we got to do it twice, mm-hmm. um, and that was a really um, intense and and wonderful experience. Um, you know, certainly for me, um, you know, as a you know as a musical theater performer who doesn't really get to do a lot of like fully staged musical theater mm-hmm. pieces. You know, a lot of what. You end up doing our readings and stuff, and that's fine. Um, You know, and I'm very happy to do that. You ever
0: do any readings and workshop productions of things that then went on to other stuff?
1: There was a musical that I did a lot of readings of uh, called um, How to Marry a Divorced Man. That uh, I always imagined would do a really great business in like regional theaters, summer theaters, because it is very much like. Do you remember the review? I love you, you're perfect now. Change mm-hmm. that was kind of like a mainstay here for a while. Right. It has that same kind of sensibility, but it is more of a book musical. You know, it has like characters. It's not really vignettes. It's got right, like, right. You know,
0: that, that was that was almost like sketch yeah. with a the theme.
1: Right, but there, you know, but the the you know the the. Yeah, the aesthetic—I I know I've been using that word a lot—and uh, but I mean, like the, you know, the driving force behind this—they're they're very kind of like similar in that in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I do know that they did have a full production recently in Florida. You know, it's just like a fun show that you see, you know, on a you know on a on a summer's night. The tunes are fantastic. It's got a really kind of heartwarming story um you know the characters are all really likable and it i always felt like that's the show that should really really take off mm-hmm. because it really is lovely and again it's got a pop sort of country score the score is written by Claire Cooper um you know who does a lot of work in the city and you know does uh, gosh she's still working she's still she has a band she has a band and i want to say they Used to have a standing gig at Cowgirl. Is Cal, Does that sound right, Cowgirl? That's a, that's a bar. There was a bar, there was a bar in New York City called yeah, Cowgirl. Cal Cal right? Cowgirl Cal and Seahorse, or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and I want to say that that's right. But uh, you know, Claire, if you're listening, and I've got it wrong, forgive me. But you're awesome, and I love your I love your work. Um, so yeah, that's a show I would have hoped actually got off the ground, and it looks like at least you know the last time I heard of it. And granted, it's been a while, um, like that's actually happening, but it's a weird time to try and get back into things, you Mm -hmm. know, because we have had the pandemic and, you know, there were a couple of gigs that, you know, um, I did have before the pandemic that I no longer have, um, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a shame. And, um, you know, it is again, you know, it's what happens, right? You know, the, you know, the business is what it is and it, it sucks sometimes, but you know, it, you know, it, it, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of trying to figure out where things fit theatrically now, um, I still am kind of getting my feet wet as far as that's concerned, mm-hmm. because it does feel as though the landscape has still has has changed a lot, and even the landscape of how we get gigs still, you know, is where yeah, we you know, are. Like like.
0: Uh taped auditions and uh, submissions like that. And I
1: will admit, you know, um, because I still had, you know, I was, you know, very lucky to still maintain, you know, my my job over the pandemic because I work from home anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And because, uh, again, I was also very lucky. We were all very lucky to still maintain um, our church gig in a virtual fashion. So Mm -hmm. we got to like, you know, you know, sing into iPhones and, you know, get kind of, good at rudimentary video editing and stuff like that. Um, Can I get
0: an amen? Amen. Send. (laughs) Right.
1: Um, You know, in spite of all that, and, you know, that did take up a lot of time, I still am very much behind in terms of, like, doing these for auditions. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never done like a taped audition. I've never submitted a taped audition or anything like that, simply because the time element hasn't been there, you know, trying to make sure that, you know, you know, my, my daughter Jade is, is, is cool with, with school, with virtual school and stuff like that and trying to keep all these other, you know, you know, it's also been kind of a crazy time with my parents. They've, you know, they were in ill health. Um, you know, there were a lot of, lot of things to keep an eye on. And so that really took a back seat, the theatrical aspect of my, you know, the, part of the career that I guess I'm still pursuing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm still trying to figure out where that fits and how it fits and if it fits. You know, I want to be a part, I think, of projects that, and this is probably the church influence. Uh, Well, it's not probably, there's no probably about it. It is. I want to be part of a dialogue that furthers something good culturally- speaking you know yeah yeah yeah. and i'm and that's not to say that there's like something terribly wrong with like you know pure entertainment and people going and like forgetting their troubles and whatever but i really like where my where my heart's desire is you know is to be a part of like whatever theater is being made that you know furthers a lot of the discussions that have been kickstarted by the mm. pandemic and by a lot of the current events that have been, that, yeah. that have been happening. Pandemic you know. is not the
0: only thing that's been happening during this chunk
1: of no, time. No, yeah. no, 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 no. So, so,
0: so you, you would like to do stuff that that... Addresses stuff other than you know teenage love and getting into sack and whatever yeah you know like something with a little more substance
2: yeah yeah I would
0: not to be oversimplifying it but you know that yeah yeah
2: and where and trying to yeah and trying to
1: figure out where I where where I would fit in that um, is still kind of like an ongoing thing Um, and inspired to write any more stuff you know and. It's funny because I feel like, yes, that one-off at the Hampton Playhouse, um, it really was a Mm one-off. Because I thought, like, why can't I, you know, um, continue this kind of thing, right, Mm -hmm. Um, elsewhere? I never felt motivated to do that kind of work Mm -hmm. anywhere else. And it's because that group of people was you know, that group, you know, those kids were really something. They really were something. Gotcha. And, gotcha. Um, you know, I don't know that I would have been able to deliver on the level that I would have demanded of myself, um, you know, without, and I know this sounds like a cop-out, you know, even as I'm saying it, I'm like, that sounds like a pretty big fucking cop-out, Richard. But, um, you know, without that kind of, you know, without that kind of stuff in the room, you know, um, So then it's like, well, if you're not going to do it for other people, you should do it for yourself. And then oh,
0: I th- heres what I, what I was thinking is the, the reason I went back to that was not to you know encourage your path composing, but at the same time, if you're not finding out there the kind of stuff with the substance or the, the sort of depth that you want to be associated with, perhaps that that's something you could help create. You know, and you know whether it's uh, you solo behind behind the keyboard or you know getting getting the band together,
1: <laughs> getting the band together. Yeah, you know, this is something that I feel like you know, because um, you know that Alex and I do these mashups. You know, they're more you know, they're mashups isn't always like the most uh, accurate word. You know, a lot of the times they're what? more medley than mashup, but still, the idea. Um, has been one of, like, trying to find connections between, you know, superficially disparate songs. Well, right?
0: if, if I may, just, just to, for, for edification, you know, because not everyone who listens to podcasts is a card-carrying member of the Binder Seuss fan club. <laughs> uh, but Why aren't you, damn it? I, well, that I have no explanation for. <laughs> but uh but I got my card. That's that's all I got to say. But uh no, but uh Richard Binder and, and Alex de uh, both members of the Summer Replacements, also um perform as, as a duo named Binder souz And uh, that's Richard behind the piano and the two of them singing any number of songs that have been intertwined with one another. Uh so it's 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 a very specific and, and interesting art form i find uh the way you guys do it and uh, i do encourage folks to to check you all out and hmm. uh, samples of this will be on display at alex's show don't tell mama but um yeah so so you, you you've been playing with that mm-hmm. um I'm I'm feeling that that I probably should start heading towards the exit of the conversation, but I, I I can't, I can't let that, uh, let it go without a couple of quick things. First of all, uh, we got to talk about your, your involvement in summer replacements. Yes. Um, and I I was trying to remember, I know obviously Alex, our longtime drummer is is how you came to us. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can't remember the specifics of why you came. like Were we need, uh, in need of a keyboard or on that particular night? Or was it just like, hey, you're, you're a good singer. Why don't you join us? Or I don't remember the specifics on, on your first working with us.
1: Do you? I really don't. You know, it's so funny that, again, it's been such a part of the fabric of life that it's almost like it's just the thing that I've been doing. And I don't remember when it started, but it's like it's always been there. Um, And it's funny because I met Alex doing a reading of a musical about Oscar Wilde that the two of us, I believe, were recruited by Doug Shapiro. (laughs) So the first time I met Alex was during this reading. And imagine my surprise when I walk into church and there's Alex. Okay. Um, Yeah, so I think that was the first time we actually like knew of each other was during oscar the musical that's how you know it's a musical because it says the musical after the colon from the title oh, so right?
0: they was not about oscar the grouch
1: it was not about although you know damn it there's a the void go fill yeah, it i know right oscar the musical yeah i don't know when that all like became a thing but it certainly was fun and you know, I don't know whether it was because like Alex and I wanted to like try out one of the mashups in a public setting or uh if it really was just sort of oh no, I remember it was I was filling in for Carl and we weren't even at Autos, we weren't at Autos. We were
0: it, at this was at Ryan's daughter Tommy Fire
1: this was upstairs at some place. Upst- it, yeah, that was Ryan's daughter.
0: Yeah. Tommy Pryor's storytelling show. Yeah,
1: and you know, and that was the first time, like we all did uh, September together, um, and all of those and all of those songs. So that was the first time I think I ever actually did anything with you guys. Okay, um,
0: that, that sounds about right. Yeah, I'll, I'll buy that.
1: And you know, and that just sort of morphed into like, you know, showing up at autos and. Um, you know, doing doing the jam sessions at the end, you know, doing backup vocals or, you know, filling in on keyboards or like debuting, you know, seeing how like this mashup flies in front of people or, um, you know, and then, of course, what happens at QED, you know, like playing the comics on and off and stuff like that. And, yeah, yeah, you know, and, you know,
0: Binder deb- yeah, Suits is actually the official house band of our gigs at QED in Astoria.
1: yeah. So it, it, you know, it,
0: it, there's, there are three reasons we've kept you around. One is Bender uh and, and and the other is that you do songs from both Was Not Was and Stu. It's true. Uh, so we, <laughs> we we like that about you. Uh, also, uh, you're you're one of the few people walking the planet who knows every death metal band that was ever referenced by our late bass player Fernando Morales Gonzalez. Uh, yeah. So, Oh, yeah. uh, man, we're still going to do a tribute to him once we get back to our, our, our
1: more regular gig. I do hope so. Yeah, because, oh, absolutely. Because absolutely. the lounge version of Cannibal Corpse that I have planned... <laughs> it may bring him back just to smack you. I, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> I, my work will have been done then, yeah.
0: Well, so, so uh, looking forward, aside from uh, taking an ever-increasingly prominent role in the summer replacements. Hmm. Um, aside from that, I, I, any goals, anything that you'd like to do? Other, I, I, You've indicated that you want to uh, do more substantive uh, stuff or stuff that, you know, that goes a little bit deeper. Yeah. Are there any particular uh, bucket list things that you'd like to
1: do? You know, like,
0: oh, I want to return to piano bars. I don't know. I, uh-huh. you Yeah. Know,
1: I would like to return to Piano Bars. I really do miss that gig. You know, it was, again, you know, a lot of what happens is you have the ideal version of the gig that you want, and then everything else that, like, everything else that you have after that kind of comes close, Mm -hmm. but not close enough for you to really be passionate about, you know... There's so many like square edges that you're trying to like sand into the round hole and you spend more of your time doing that than actually fitting. You well, know
0: if you didn't have to sand down things what what would you it, money's no object uh, rhyme and reason and, and logic or, or or just magically poof. What would you love to most love to be doing?
2: yeah,
1: I think I really would like to be in a piano bar again. I really would like to be in a piano bar again and, and, and you know, singing and playing from like 9 or 10 until 4 in the morning, you know, and just like have friends show up and just jam on stuff and, and try things, see see what happens, you know, get get a chord chart in front of you for the first time and, you know, see what, you know, see how something goes and then like try something in front of people for the first time. I really... I really enjoyed that. Um, I would like to have that happen. And I would like to explore, I think, and I do have to get over big parts of myself to do this. Um, I would like to explore maybe like, because the mashup stuff kind of is, uh, it is a hop and a skip, maybe bigger than I imagine to actually writing something of my own. Mm -hmm. You know, because I figure... Why are you combining two existing songs when you can just write the song that like bridges that gap anyway, right? <laughs> so well, they're they're they're,
0: they're different uh, they're different art forms really, and I really do consider what you guys do is, is, as an art form. Thank you. Because there's nobody out there <laughs> really doing that that way uh, with that level of of, of skill and playfulness. Mm, thank you
1: you know we do have a good time yeah and we have tons of ideas anyway that's the other thing too i'd love to have unlimited time to comb through like all my emails and texts of alex and i going what about this and this what about this and this we should put these two together we should put these three together we should put these five together right um we still have a david bowie prince thing that um just has taken on ginormous proportions that we really do kind of have to get back to and try and figure out if we can actually make work um, it's like get,
0: get in shape for, for our return to autos we're, we're working on that I hope so, so I hope so because
1: uh, I do miss that you know so yeah. seriously let, yeah. let's
0: make that one of the first things that we tackle when we're, when we're back in action
1: yeah yeah so you know again you know I do want to like satisfy all of these sort of like yearnings you know to like express all these different parts of myself that you know for the most part actually get expressed like i said in this church setting but there are like you know but obviously the church is sort of like you know it is kind of a limited audience kind of thing Mm -hmm. you know um and there's nothing wrong with that but um you know there are like You know, you want to take this show on the road a little bit and like, you know, diversify a little bit more and, and see where else, you know, the things that ring your bells, you know, how many other people's bells can they ring too? So, and trying to figure out how to make that happen is still like an ongoing process of like starting over and, you know. And, and, and try not to fuck it up too badly. <laughs> yeah, that's my, pretty
0: much my approach to any artistic in, 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 endeavor. Just try not to screw up too badly. <laughs> I, I, I have often said that to myself just before walking on stage. Uh, sometimes it's taken hold. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, 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 I have no doubt of you. Keep you know, following where the impulse takes you. You're going to get there and, and, and do it. And if not, you know. Come around, your, your friends will kick your ass. Good. Um, <laughs> hey, man, just thanks for, for spending some time with us and and uh, keep doing your good work,
1: man. Thank I, you. I'm
0: excited to see what happens next.
1: Thank you. This was fun. Thank you for asking me. Excellent. Thank you.
0: All right, well, I, I, I enjoy talking to that guy. Uh, I like that guy. I enjoy working with him. And it was interesting It's, awesome. it's funny, I realized when, when I get together with Richard Bender We have a tendency to have really long conversations That seem almost entirely revolving around uh, cartoons And pop culture and old movies and things of that nature And it occurred to me as I was talking I was like, wow, I'm, like, he's an actual person Not just a guy who can quote Bugs Bunny So, uh, so I enjoyed it in that, on that level I hope you guys did too uh, and I hope you'll definitely uh, come check him out once we're doing regular live shows again, which hopefully we'll start again this fall. In the meantime, uh, that, that's about it for today. Um, we're, we're wrapping up here. But as I always tell you, stick around. We're going to end this. It's totally ended. It's totally over. But it's not totally over. After we conclude, stick around. After a couple of seconds, we have bonus content. So don't tell anyone because it's supposed to be a secret. But uh, until then, until next time, until we see you in person or virtually again, uh, my name is Eric Vetter. Thanks for spending time with us. I love you all. All right, are you still there? Are you still there? Are you there? Come on, speak up. Don't be afraid. Don't be shy. You're amongst friends. Good, I knew you'd stick around. Hi, I'm still Eric Vedder. You're still who you are. And you have landed in the bonus content for this episode of the No Name Podcast. We got a special treat for you. We've got an unreleased song from a forthcoming album from James Tristan Redding. These are, this is a, a rough mix. It's not gone. It's not officially been mixed. It's not been put out there, but you get a sneak preview of that. For those who don't know, James Tristan Redding is a wonderful singer-songwriter who uh, was a member of the Summer Replacements, or house band, for a number of years. Currently living in Nashville and doing amazing things there, and I always love his music. I think you'll enjoy his music, too. So we'll get to that in just a second, but first... Our bonus content is sponsored by the wonderful Word Up Community Bookshop, located at 2113 Amsterdam Avenue. That's the corner of 165th Street and Amsterdam Avenue in Washington Heights. This is a wonderful place. It's a community-based place, and it is the bookshop with a little something extra. Uh, They have a great selection of new and used books, uh, not only in English, but in Spanish and many other languages as well. They also have merchandise from notebooks to T-shirts to tote bags to games, uh, all sorts of cool stuff there. It is largely volunteer staffed, and uh, they also have programs for young people. There are artist events, uh, author events. There are writing workshops, so please check them out. Lots of good stuff there. They also have an online bookshop. Do check them up out at wordupbooks.com and uh, support independent bookshops. That's always a good thing. So whenever you're in Washington Heights, uptown New York City, be sure to drop into Word Up Community Bookshop.
2: I can't take it back. I can't change the facts I can't make the past Be something else I can't get too close I can't let you go I can't dream of loving Someone else
0: So that was, again, it was a song, unreleased song from James Tristan Redding. Please Google him. Look him up. Go to his website. Uh, He's got amazing music out there. And you just got a a little taste of something that's forthcoming from him very soon. So uh, thank you for not only listening to the podcast, but for sticking around for the bonus content. If you like what you're hearing, any or all of it, please let folks know. Post links on social media. Stick around. Let us know what you'd like to hear in the future. Uh, in the meantime, just take good care of yourselves. My name is Eric Vetter. Thanks for being here.